Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, everyone. It is the 23rd of March, and we are enjoying a beautiful morning, 65 degrees right now it was boy it just jumped up i'm telling you just two minutes ago i looked at it and said it was 62 i don't know how it jumped that quick but it was nice last night it was nice it was uh, down to 58 last night let my little dog could feel her kind of cold she came up on the bed and put had to put a little cover because she was shivering but not that any of you would think that was cold but here in mexico it can really feel cold once you're used to all this heat. Well, we are facing another challenge to get into the book of Numbers and look at some of these details that some of us aren't uh, familiar with and some of these interesting things that are that are a bit confusing. But before we do that, I always like to go over and look at this day in history and some of the interesting things that went on on this day. For the 23rd of March in 1857, a man named Elisha Graves Otis demonstrated in the New York Exposition in the Crystal Palace a dramatic death-defying presentation since 1854. But anyway, earning him the first customer of a department store to buy this new thing he invented called the commercial elevator. And his elevator was amazing because... It had a safety device which prevented the cab from falling if the cable broke. And that's what had kept people from ever using elevators, apparently, up to that point. So, that's where the Otis elevator began. Also, sadly, on this day, March 23rd, 1933, kind of the course of the world took a big turn. Adolf Hitler passes the Enabling Act, which effectively gave him dictatorial powers. He then used that power to ban other political parties. Be careful when you start banning other political parties. Something that seems to have just happened in Ukraine. Not saying anything against their leader right now, but anytime you do that, it is uh, serious stuff. So, that being said, let's uh, look over at a couple of dad jokes before we get going. What happens when it rains cats and dogs? Well, you have to be careful not to step in the poodle. (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Okay, let's try another one. This one I missed when I first saw it. I wasn't, I'm a little thick, but see if you guys get it on the first run. Two guys walked into a bar. The third guy ducked. A bar. Not the other guy. Two guys walked in. Okay. I think that I'm not even going to do a sound effect on one. How about this one? Did you know that bees are actually allergic to pollen? They break out in hives. There you go. All right, we're ready to start into the word this morning. So let's pray. Ask God to bless it. God, thank you for this beautiful time. Thank you for this morning. Ask that you would guide us and direct us and give us insight, give us understanding, God, to all that you are doing in our lives. And uh, we're just excited to see the things that you you want to show us this morning. So thank you for giving us this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Chapter 26 of the book of Numbers. Then it came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's households, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of all the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord has commanded Moses. Now the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were Reuben, Israel's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, of Hanak, the family of the Hanachites, and Palu, the family of the, the Puites, and Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, and Camri, the family of the Camanites. These are the families of the Reubenites, and those who were numbered of them were 43,730. The sons of Palu, Eliab. The sons of Eliab, Namuel, in Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram who were called by the congregation who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah. When that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men so that they became a warning. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. The sons of Simeon, according to their families, of Nemuel, the family of the Nemuelites, and Jamin, the family of the Jamanites, and Jachin, the family of the Jachinites, and Zerah, the family of the Zerites, and Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. These are the families of the Simeonites. 22,200, the sons of Gad, according to their families, Zephon, the family of the Zephonites, and of Haggai, the family of the Haggites, and Shuni, the family of the Shunites, and Ozni, the family of the Oznites, and Eri, the family of the Erites, Arad, the family of the Arodites, and Areli, the family of Arelites. These are the families of the sons of Gad, according to those who were numbered of them, 40,500. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Judah, according to their families, were Shelah, the family of the Shilonites, and Perez, the family of the Perizzites, and Zerah, the family of the Zerahites. The sons of Perez were Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, and Hamul, the family of the Hamanites. These are the families of Judah, according to those who were numbered of them, 76,500. The sons of Issachar, according to their families, and of Tola, the family of the Tolaites, and Puva, the family of the Punites, and Jasub, the family of the Jashubites, and Shimron, the family of the Shimonites. These are the families of Issachar, according to those who are numbered of them, 64,300. The sons of Zebulun, according to their families, of Sherad, the family of the Sheratites, of Elon, the family of the Elanites, and Jalel, the family of the Jelonites. These are the families of the Zebulonites, according to those who were numbered of them, 60,500. The sons of Joseph, according to their families, Manasseh and Ephraim. The sons of Manasseh, of Machar, the family of the Machrites, of Machir, and the family of, the, of Gilead, and of Gilead, the family of the Gileadites. These are the sons of Gilead, Lesser, the family of the Lesserites, and Helek, the family of the Helekites, and 
Asriel, the family of Asrielites, and Shechem, the family of the Shechemites, and Shemida, the family of the Shemidites, and of Hefer, the family of the Heferites. Now Zelolaphad, the son of Hefer, had no sons, but only daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad was Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tizra. These are the families of Manasseh. And those who were numbered of them were 52,700. These are the sons of Ephraim according to their families. And to Shuthalah, the family of the Suthalahite of Becher, the family of the Becherites, and Tahan, the family of the Tahanites. These are the sons of Shethulah, of Aaron, the family of the Aaronites. These are the families of the sons of Ephraim, according to those who were numbered of them, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph, according to their families. The sons of Benjamin, according to their families. Of Bela, the family of the Belaites. Of Ashbel, the family of the Ashbelites. Of Hiram, the family of the Hiramites. Of Shephulam, the family of the Shuphamites. Of Hufam, the family of the Hufamites. The sons of Bela and Ard. And Naaman and Ard, the family of the Ardites, and of Naaman, and the family of the Naamites. These are the sons of Benjamin according to their families. And those who were numbered of them were 45,600. These are the sons of Dan according to their families. Of Shuman, the family of the Shumites. These are the families of Dan according to their families. All the families of the Shuamites according to those who were numbered of them were 64,400. The sons of Asher according to their families of Imna, the family of the Imnites, and Ishvi, the family of the Ishvites, and Berea, the family of the Berites, the sons of Beriah, of Heber, the family of the Hebrites, and Milchiel, the family of the Milchielites. The name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah. These are the families of the sons of Asher, according to those who were numbered of them, 53,400. The sons of Naphtali, according to the families of Jaziel, the family of the Jezielites, of Guni, the family of the Gunites, of Jazer, the family of the Jezerites, of Shalim, the family of the Shilamites. These are the families of Naphtali, according to their families, and those who were numbered of them were 45,400. These are those who were numbered of the sons of Israel, 601,730. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger group, you shall increase their inheritance. And to the smaller group, you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who were numbered them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller groups. These are those who were numbered by the Levites according to the families of Gershom, the family of the Gershonites, and of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites, of Merari, the family of the Merarites. These are the families of Levi according to, to the Libnites, according to the Hebronites, the family of the Mohalites, the family of the Mushites, the family of the Korathites. Korah became the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jacobed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. She bore him Amram, Aaron and Moses, and their sister Miriam. Verse 60. To Aaron was born Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. 
But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. Those who were numbered of them were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward, for they were not numbered among the sons of Israel, since no inheritance was given to them among the sons of Israel. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho. But among these were not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left among them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So when we get to this chapter in Numbers, we're jumping way ahead of what had been happening in the wilderness. 38 years to be exact, basically, right around there. They are on the wilderness. They're right at the border. They're at the Jordan. And all of their their parents, these kids were little when the spies went into the land and refused to go in because of the giants. And they they were not willing to trust God after all God had done with them and after God was still there with the cloud and the fire and they could discern his presence and everything going on with all the blessings and all the protection, all the water, all the food, including the birds and the meat, they said, nope, we can't trust you. We don't believe that you could win against these giants. So God says, okay, I'm going to let you all die out. The 40 days the spies were in the land will be 40 years, one year for each day of their unbelief, essentially. And now they're at the border and they're recounting. God wants them to recount And this was a sign as well, because the recounting of the people meant that God was serious about them being in the land and taking their inheritance. Essentially, okay, I want to know how big each tribe is, or God wanted them to know, so you know how the land is going to be divided. So the sons of Israel still have the giants in the land. They still have to go in and battle for it. But God is assuring them, you will have victory because I'm going to divide up the land. It wasn't to number them for how strong their army was going to be. Isn't it interesting? They have to go in and do a major battle against the strongest armies, per se, of that time of the world with giants among them. And God says, no, 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 I'm not numbering you to organize your military. I'm I'm just numbering you to know who gets what. See, in God's mind, the victory was already won. They were to know that. The victory was already won. They were to look past the giants, as we say, look past your giant problems to the giant God you have and take possession of what he has for you. They were to be thinking about settling in the land and trust God for the battle. The idea was not to preoccupy themselves, to to live in fear when they were going to cross the Jordan. God says, I will be victorious. I will give you the victory if you trust in me. So this is God's way, again, of giving them this assurance. Hey, you're going to go in and take the land. Don't even worry about it. You will be victorious as long as you follow me. Let me guide you in there. Let me be your strength and your fortress. And good <laughs> good thing to think about. So when you look at all these numbers there, I mean, all of the people and, and all the names, which I pronounce perfectly, of course. No problem. I got those names down. But, not really. Um, 
when you look at all of those names and all those tribes and those numbers, you can be overwhelmed and you go, why am I looking at this? Well, you have to take a step back and say, why would it be important to them? Not always immediately important to us. Why was it important to them to get these numbers? And then you go, oh, okay. And you try and put that together in your mind. And then you say, how does it apply to me? Well, what do we know about the battles we face and the giants we face? Pretty much the same thing that Christ says, you know, I've overcome the world. God has won the battle against sin, against the enemy. And he has given us a future. He's given us our inheritance, which is him, by the way, but it's being in his presence and beginning for a thousand years in the millennium, just as a warm-up, just to get us a little used to eternity with him. We get a thousand years on the re, uh, remade, reformed, I should say, whatever, earth, void of all of the sin and all of the issues that we're going, I should say that, void of all sin because we're going to have mortal beings here, but essentially of war and uh, and all of the ugliness that's been going on in the world. So, yeah, we still have to face battles. But if we follow the Lord and we keep our eyes on him, he's guaranteed us our inheritance. And that's important to remember in light of the things that we're looking towards because we are looking towards great battles in the future. This is my personal opinion, but it's scriptural. Things are going to continue to get worse before they get better, and we are to keep our eyes focused on him. What happens in Ukraine could just snowball out of control. And um, what Hitler did about bringing in a dictatorial powers over all you know, Germany is going to happen with the Antichrist eventually, but that could happen sooner than later. So keep your mind focused on God. Do not look at the giants that are going on, the giant battles we have, and let him lead us into the victory and our inheritance. John chapter 7 now. Jesus teaches at the feast. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. If it hates me because I testify of it, that is, these are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. 
Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law will not be broken, you are angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said one to another, Where does this man indeed intend to go that we cannot find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is a prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So division occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said, 
to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Everyone went to his home. So, Jesus speaking at the last, at the feast. This is the Feast of Booths. A great feast lasts seven days. The amazing thing about this whole thing is what he does on the last day. But initially he allows the, he, he allows the disciples to go up without him. And his all of his reasoning is interesting when you look at it. He wasn't going to go up purposefully to make a public statement. He goes up secretly. He goes up in a sense, because he says his time has not yet come. So he goes up not to proclaim himself king, not because he has yet to get to the point to fulfill the prophecy in Daniel where the king comes and the city rejects him. This great prophecy in Daniel from the restoring the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem That's beyond 183,770 days. I might have my days off there until the coming of Messiah. And that day was coming rapidly, but it had not yet come. And so essentially he's not going to pronounce himself publicly as king until that day to fulfill that prophecy. So instead he goes up secretly, as if secretly. He goes up anyway. And, and that's to give us the, the, the understanding prophetically that he's not proclaiming himself to be king. He's going up to this, this feast, and he there is allowing people to think about who he is. And, and that's what he does. Here I am. What are you going to do? I'm fulfilling all the prophecies about the Messiah. And some are agreeing yes, some are saying no. They're forgetting that he really was from Bethlehem. They were thinking he's, he was from Nazareth, from Galilee, because they didn't realize that his mom, dad, father, whatever you call half dad, go down to have his have his birth in Bethlehem. So there's all this division that breaks out, and of course the prophets, the Pharisees want to seize him, and the guards can't because they're blown away by what he has to say. There's a power to the to the words of Jesus when you're in when you come in, in contact with truth. It's hard to seize it. And get rid of it. You've got to deal with it. The 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 lies and the, and the power struggle. They're trying to suppress the truth. These guys were representative of that. And when they got hammered with the truth, they were they were astonished. And this is this really speaks to me. And I've shared this from the pulpit before. But this is what happened to me, and this is what happens to so many of us. We come to attack and to seize Jesus and say, "I don't want you in my life." I don't want to believe, you know, I'm having too much fun partying. I, I don't want you in my life. You're an inconvenience or whatever. And yet when we stop and hear what he has to say, 
we are pierced through the heart. We can't move. We're astounded. We're like, wow, I've never heard this before at all. And uh, I think most of you would agree. And that's just a few new people that are just now starting to listen. You've got to listen to what he's saying. And here he starts pouring out this truth. He says, I've come from my father. And I'm going back to my father. And the words I speak are words of truth. And where I'm going, you cannot come. He's referring to going back physically and spiritually into heaven. And then they were not understanding that. So he's talking. He was talking about the crucifixion that was coming and his ascension back to the father. And so they're trying to figure all this out. And they're trying to arrest him. But the last thing he does, and this is one of the, the great last things he does before he does, comes and allows himself to be arrested and all these um, other things to go to the cross, is on the last day of the feast, which was the time when the priest, the priests of were to take this pitcher and pour it out um, before the Lord. And I'm trying to remember all the details. It's really beautiful, the ritual that they would do. It's like they would go down. Forgive me, guys. I should have looked at my notes. The Pool of Bethsaida, I don't remember, to try. And they would be taking water every day and pouring it out before the Lord. But the last day, they were to pour, they were to pour out that the pitcher, and it was emptied, and it was to signify their... their uh, Gosh, I'm forgetting the dependence on, on God. It was it was a very ritualistic thing that they were doing regarding water, and the pouring out of water, and uh, and its um, <laughs> purification. And Jesus says, "I am the living water. All who are thirsty come unto me." It was perfect as he was shouting this out in the Temple Mount while the priests were going through this ritual of water purification and water being poured out before the Lord. And so he was identifying himself in this amazing mystical way, being connected to God and to the priesthood and to life and to purification. And it's, uh, go back and listen to the chapter that I have and, uh, and give me a little grace because my memory has now collapsed. I can't remember all those details, but I have it in the in the teaching and the chapter, and it's it's just mind blowing when you get the context of some of the things Jesus was doing, and how many prophecies he was fulfilling, and how he was always bringing to life the Old Testament, bringing to life all of these things that had been established thousands of years before, and it meant so much to the people when they would hear this. Then many would did believe in him. For today now, with Charles Spurgeon, the title, A Sure Guide. I will bring the blind by a way which they knew not, Isaiah 42, 16. Think of the infinitely glorious Jehovah acting as a guide to the blind. What boundless condescension does this imply? A blind man cannot find a way which he does not know. Even when he knows the road, it is hard for him to traverse it, but a road which he has not known is quite out of the question for his unguided feet. Now, we are by nature blind as to the way of salvation, and yet the Lord leads us into it and brings us to himself. He then opens our eyes as to the future 
We are all of us blind and cannot see an hour before us, but the Lord Jesus will lead us even to our journey's end. Blessed be his name. We cannot guess in which way the deliverance can possibly come to us, but the Lord knows, and he will lead us till we shall have escaped every danger. Happy are those who place their hand in that of the great guide and leave their way and themselves entirely to him. He will bring them all the way, and when he has brought them home to glory and has opened their eyes to see the way by which he has led them, what a song of gratitude they will sing, their great benefactor. Lord, lead us, thy poor blind child, this day, for I know not my way. I can't, again, add much of anything to that. So uh, that's truth, undeniable truth of who we are in Christ, that we need to keep our minds set upon that, that we are helpless and blind and poor. And he's the only one who can lead us home, the only one who can lead us in anything, even in our daily walk. So let's pray for that. Father God, we do thank you that you have brought us life, that you are the living water, and that when we drink, Father, in and take you in into our lives, that we ourselves become alive. You give us life as water gives us life to our physical bodies. You give us life to our spiritual bodies. And yet, Father, we still have not a clue of our of our future. We have not a clue how to find our way to you. It's only by asking, and it's only by receiving. And then it, we find, God, that you are a great guide to the blind, that you lead us in the way of righteousness, that you go before us, you prepare a path for us, and you also go into, into battle for us and you lead us into all the difficulties and you lead us home where you desire to have established for us an inheritance, a mansion, a position of great honor to be ruling even over the angels. Things we cannot even imagine. Positions, jobs, blessings, innumerable await us, yet we know not for a second how to go forth without you. We need you, Father. We need your guidance. We need your hand upon us to guide us, to be our strength, that your Holy Spirit, God, would, would be ever present within us so that we would be able to follow you. We don't see the cloud or the fire anymore physically, but it's there. And Father, we ask that it be something that you guide us supernaturally. We need that, Father. We need it today. We need you to guide us in the subtle things in those little areas, Father. It's the day-to-day task of living out life where we need your guidance because we can get off track so easy. So thank you for this day, and we pray you would keep our minds steadfast upon you and that we would keep you in the forefront of our minds and be seeking and looking for you in all things that pertain to godliness and all things that you desire for us to do today. We want to keep our minds set upon you, focused so we don't get off track. The world is pulling us in so many different directions and wants to pull us into this mindset of surrendering everything, all our rights, all of our theology, our ideology, unto a kind of a melting pot of a one-world system. Father, we... We see that as the big giant, and we ask that you would 
Make us strong, Father. Give us strength to stand up against us, knowing that you are going to guide us and battle, battle against it. So we simply surrender our lives and our hearts and everything unto you and to be your servants. And thank you for this opportunity to be together as a family. Again, Father, be able to talk one to another, share with one to another the insights we're learning as we go through the Word. Thank you for, for making this platform available. And for the new people joining, thank you for the beautiful things you're doing, the encouragement we are receiving and doing this, God. Uh, thank you. And God, we pray as we finish this morning for your hand to be upon those that are involved in this, that are seeking to know you and learn of you on a daily basis, that your hand of blessing would be upon their life for their faithfulness, but also your hand of healing for those that need it, those that have things going on. Didn't ask for them, God. Didn't want them. But here we are with these physical ailments, need for certain surgical procedures. Our prayers that you would touch us, touch the bodies of my brothers and sisters and heal them so that we can walk in wholeness and we can be about our Father's business. Pray for Francisco now as he's still in the hospital in Guadalajara that he would be able to hear the, the results of the tests and the results of the doctor's visits and see everything that's going on so that we know how to pray, but also that he be, we know that he's being healed. We know that he's feeling better. We know the tumors, tumors are shrinking or they're being removed. So thank you for all that you're doing there. And we thank you for the reports that we continually hear out of Poland and uh, the millions of people that are getting out of there and the amazing things that you are doing, God, even now through Christians, through people that are faithful, God, in their serving of you to bring these people out and get them in safety, but also to minister to them. So what a no better time for them to surrender their hearts and their lives to you than now. So pray for the, all those involved in this war and that's going on in Eastern Europe. Well, going everywhere in Europe. Now be awake. There's an awakening to the, to the soon destruction of this world through a, a world war. So use it, Father, for an opportunity to let people wake up and understand that time is short. You're coming back. And use us to bring them to a knowledge of our God, of our Savior for salvation. So thank you, God, for a wonderful day that you've given us and help us to live it out for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Tonight at 6.30, we will be in First Samuel. It's going to be a good chapter. really would like to encourage you to join us at 6.30 if you can, or you can catch it on the Rewind. Uh, it'll be there on Facebook and YouTube. So you can watch it anytime. So God bless you. Wait to see you this afternoon. Bye-bye.